James chapter 1. We'll be looking today at verses 26 and 27, but we will be doing that toward the end of the sermon, so please be patient. Uh, We will get to our text today. Just to remind you, James wrote this book as an open letter, a sermon of sorts, to the people who had been a part of his congregation in Jerusalem, and now because of persecution they have been scattered among the nations. The sermon is intensely practical as James seeks to instruct his readers. And I hesitate to use the word instruct because we should keep in mind, and we saw this during the introductory sermon, that this book has over 50 imperatives or commands. That is, grammatically, James is telling them what to do. He's not saying, this is what I think you should do, this is my suggestion, this is information. They already know this. And as their pastor, he is reminding them and he is telling them, this is what you must do. I would submit to you that they already know. They just have forgotten. And uh, as a pastor gently reminds his congregation, James writes this letter. James paints a picture of life in which all of what we experience comes under the heading of trial. That is something to test our faith, our trust in God. If we believe God, we will obey him. We will endure in our obedience. If we do not believe him, then we will not, uh, well, we do not believe him. We must believe something else. I think it is human nature. We must believe something. We will be deceived. We will give in to our own desires. If we believe and disbelieve at the same time, We are doubters. We are like the waves of the sea that are tossed back and forth. We will be unstable in all we do. Because we are seeking to live in two minds. A mind of belief and a mind of unbelief at the same time. In our passage today, verses 26 and 27, we find practical directions for living out what we have read about thus far. Specifically, how we are to live in connection with others and in the context of the world. I want to sort of digress a bit and and talk about something that I think will prepare us to look at this passage and other passages in Scripture. You may have seen that people wear these bracelets with the the letters WWJD on it, uh, or seen it in other forms, standing for what would Jesus do. And part of me, I think, really wants to commend these people who take to heart that they want to think carefully about the actions that they take, about the choices they make, about the words they speak. But I think it's not the best question that should be asked. I think a better question, rather than saying, what would Jesus do, the question should be, what did Jesus do? And I think if we ask the second question, what did Jesus do, rather than what would Jesus do, it really has significant implications for us. First of all, it removes from us, I think, the power or the right to make pronouncements about what Jesus would do. I think most of the time, based on our own opinions. If we ask the question, what did Jesus do, then we need to imitate him. But if we ask the question, what would Jesus do, then in a sense we get to make up our own mind and make up our own choices and come to our own conclusion. We live in a modern world, in a technologically advanced world, I think that is radically different than the world that Jesus lived in. 
And so many of the questions that we might ask uh, are almost nonsensical on, on some level. You know, would Jesus drive a Porsche? You know, would Jesus play professional basketball? You know, these types of questions. And, and, and amazingly, I, I find that people always come up with the answer, yes. <laughs> yes, he would. Uh, and, and I think that distance culturally really has opened the door for people to become, in essence, their own God, for them to decide what it is that they can and cannot do. Something else happens, and that is the things that really matter, or uh, that's not the way to put it. Um, what ends up happening is the area of their lives in which they ask this question becomes narrower and narrower. Instead of saying, what would Jesus do and applying that to all of life, because when you do that in the 21st century compared to the 1st century, it's just so different that it ends up just being this very small part of my life that I ask that question in. I reread an interesting uh, article. It's from the Critique uh, newsletter that Dennis and Margie uh, Hack put out out of Minnesota. Uh, and the title of the article is, Did Jesus Smoke? Uh, Jeremy uh, Hutchins wrote it. Uh, Hutchins or Huggins, and uh, it's humorous. He has a very funny style of writing, but I I, I like his approach. Uh, he doesn't say w- would Jesus smoke, but did he in fact smoke? And but again, I think this whole movement about asking what would he do opens the door. I think to things that well, it gives us the, a certain freedom and a right that really is not ours to have in the first place. Second thing is, if we ask the question, what did Jesus do? It requires that we know what the Gospels record. Uh, and I have to tell you, I'm getting older, uh, I'm 50, but I'm amazed how little people know about what the Gospels actually say. And I'm not talking about people on the street, I'm talking about people in the pews that that there, there are things that they think, that they imagine are there, that aren't there, or there are things that are in the Gospels that, so, wow, I, I, never, I never knew that. If we are going to ask the question, what did Jesus do? Then it requires that we read the Gospels and have some understanding of what he did. Um, and it's, listen, it's a lot easier to ask, what would Jesus do? Because then you don't even have to read the Bible. You can just sort of imagine what Jesus would do and, and then come to your own conclusion. But I think, thirdly, and the most important thing that happens if we ask this question is, it should cause us to read the Old Testament, but particularly the New Testament, in the light of who Jesus is. That is, when we read James, for example, or the other epistles, rather than hearing theoretical doctrinal application formulas, we should rather read the scriptures, and I'm thinking here particularly of the commands, because that's what James does in this letter, based on the person of Jesus and how he lived. With regard to the Old Testament, I think we have some understanding of that, that Jesus came to fulfill the law. So that if you want to know how Jesus lived, look at the Old Testament, look at the law, and we have a sense, this is who Jesus of Nazareth was. I don't think we do that with the New Testament, however, and we should. The best example that I can think of is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You perhaps are all familiar with it. It's known as the love chapter. 
and uh, people read it and they see it as a definition of love. Do you want to know what love is? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I think that is a secondary meaning of 1 Corinthians 13. I think what Paul is doing as he writes this chapter is he is telling his readers, this is how Jesus lived. This is who Jesus was. As someone has said to me once, 1 Corinthians 13 is a portrait of Jesus. But I think we don't take that approach. We take a very uh, theoretical, doctrinal uh, a list, you know, these are the things you're supposed to do, these are the things you're not supposed to do, rather than understanding that all of Scripture points to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it tells us what Jesus did. Now, if we take this approach, what we've seen thus far in the book of James, you know, James tells us uh, that we are to, we will go through trials and testings, we are to endure, and we are to persevere. Not give in to our desires, not give in to sin, and therefore the consequence we would face is death. And here we can think of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Matthew begins his account with the words, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. We are tested by God, not tempted by God. We are tempted by the devil. And we read, one of the great understatements of Scripture After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, you know, if you don't eat for 40 days and 40 nights, hunger is a natural consequence. The point, I think, is that Jesus naturally would have the desire to eat. And there's nothing wrong with that. And remember, the word that James uses here in chapter 1 about desire is not evil desire. The King James uses the word lust. No. He's talking about ordinary desire. But then Satan came and took what is a natural desire and turned it into a temptation. Turned the stones into bread. But we would say, what what would be wrong with that? If Jesus had the power, he had the desire to eat, he hadn't eaten for 40 days or 40 nights, he needs to eat, why not do this? You know, the other two temptations, I think we can see through these. We see these as really satanic. You know, he takes Jesus to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself off and the angels will catch you. Like, well, no, no, that, we know that's bad. Okay. And then the third one, you know, bow down and worship me and all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. Well, we know that worshiping Satan isn't a good thing. So the, the, the second and third temptations, we have, you know, we can see through that. But what's wrong with wanting to eat? If you haven't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, it's a natural thing to want to eat. Your body needs to be sustained. What was wrong with it, and all three temptations have this component in common, it was a shortcut. It was a shortcut. Get food now. Do a miracle to get food now. Prove who you are now. Jump off the temple and the angels will catch you, and everyone will see that you are the Messiah. The last one, though, is the kicker. Gain the world. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world, and you won't have to suffer at all. No suffering. No three years of hanging out with disciples who don't get it. 
No being persecuted by the Pharisees. No being betrayed. No being crucified. Bow down and worship me. And you got it now. No suffering. It's yours now. There's a shortcut. And if you take the shortcut, it will all be yours. And James tells us that we will suffer. We will be tested. We need to endure. There is no shortcut. We must endure. We must persevere. And then we will be made complete. I've told you before I'm taking uh, guitar lessons over at LACC. And uh, one of the things the teacher told us this past week, and I've learned this is true by experience, you cannot cram learning to play the guitar. You can cram for a math exam. You can cram for a history exam. You can't cram learning to play a musical instrument. It just takes time. In the same way, being a child of God and living our lives the way we should, there are no shortcuts. We are to endure. We are to persevere. But what James is talking about here, this is not theoretical. This isn't some abstract thing. This is Jesus. This is what Jesus did. And so when we ask ourselves, what did Jesus do? Endure, persevere, perfection, or desire, sin, death? We know the answer. This is what Jesus did. James, I think, if we want to reduce it, actually if we want to reduce all of Scripture, we could say it is this. Follow the example of Jesus. So when we read through the New Testament and all the admonitions, this is what you're supposed to do, these are the things you're not supposed to do, we shouldn't think that the apostles were somehow trying to make our lives difficult, to make up all these rules and regulations or like, you know, what am I supposed to do? What am I not supposed to do? What they are doing for us is fleshing out who the person of Jesus was. This is what Jesus did. He endured. He didn't give in to desire. Desire is not wrong. You're hungry. It's natural. You want to eat. That's not wrong. But the temptation came to take the shortcut. Okay? Endure or shortcut. Endure or shortcut. And Jesus endured, and so should we. Now, there is an important difference between Jesus and ourselves. He was, he is perfect without sin or flaw. And we are, on the other hand, in the words of Bob Dylan, born already ruined. I mean, we come into this world and we're a mess already. Sorry, Marie, but even Molly, your, your perfect granddaughter, we are born with original sin. Okay. The apostles knew this, and they expressed it better than I ever could. But this is why they wrote their letters. Because even though we are the, child, the children of God, and Jesus is the Son of God, we don't automatically do the things we're supposed to do. That's the sin nature is there trying to get us to go in a different way. And so the apostles are saying, follow Jesus. Follow his example. What did Jesus do? Read the epistles. And that is what Jesus did. We have to be taught and told what is the right thing to do. And then we have to be told to do the right thing. Because after all, knowing is not enough. Doing is what is important. Have you ever done this? It drives me nuts when people do this. So you go up to someone, uh, usually someone you know, and you say, uh, do you know what time it is? And they say yes. 
And could you tell me what time it is? In the same way, we should not read the epistles and say, do you know what the right thing to do is? Yes. Then do the right thing. This is what James says to his readers. We saw this last week. Do not merely be listeners and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, you may say, if you're thinking about this, you might be saying, well, Damon, that sounds good up to verse number 18. But what we saw last week, beginning in verse number 19, this really doesn't seem to apply. Particularly the part about being quick to listen, slow to speak. The slow to become angry. Yeah, we can see that, but but not the quick to listen and slow to speak. I would disagree. And I would encourage you to reread the, the Gospels in the light of what James says. Jesus came to earth to reveal the Father to us. Without question, he had a lot to say. But I am struck, and I've gone through the Gospels just in the last two weeks on tape listening to them, and it really hit me how many times Jesus was silent and people wanted him to say something, and he didn't. And I'm not talking just when he was on trial before his crucifixion. Throughout his ministry, that people come up to him and they want him to say something, and and he's quiet. I'm also struck by his desire to listen to people. Read the Gospels. How many times does Jesus ask people things? How many times does he want feedback from them? He wants them to talk. I'm also amazed at how much ink the opposition gets in the Gospels. The people who don't believe, they are still there in the Gospels. And I would submit to you that Jesus, in fact, was quick to listen and slow to speak. We shouldn't be surprised at this because we've seen this of God in the Old Testament. Yes, God has a lot to say. He is going to reveal himself. He is revealing himself to the people of the Old Testament. But consider how many times God asks questions rather than making statements. And that he was, in fact, quick to listen. Beginning with Adam and Eve after they sinned, where God asked Adam a series of questions. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat the fruit? And he listened. I was reminded of Bill Cosby did a, decades ago, did a skit on uh, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. And God came down and said, okay, that's it. Everybody out of the pool. You know, and that's, I think, the approach we have that when God comes into our lives, he just wants to say things. No, he asks questions and he wants to listen. And it doesn't end with Adam and Eve. With Cain, when Cain was displeased that God did not accept his offering. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Where is your brother Abel? What have you done? So what James tells us about being quick to listen and slow to speak, this is Jesus. Okay, This is not some theoretical, this isn't rules to live by type of thing. This is a portrait of Jesus of Nazareth. And so I would encourage you when you read the scriptures that rather than thinking in terms of rules, and I think many of us do that, or in terms of theology or abstraction, I think we should think more in terms of person, a person, personal terms, Jesus of Nazareth. With that in mind, we now come to our text today. Two verses, the last two verses of chapter 1. 
which demonstrate in part what James meant by obedience to the perfect law that gives freedom. We saw that last week in verse number 25. James goes straight into the three marks of genuine religion, a controlled tongue, caring for the needy, and personal holiness. Look, if you would, as I read these two verses. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. When I read these verses... uh, at least one question comes up, perhaps two, uh, as soon as I read this. First of all, why use the word religion? This is the only place in the New Testament where the word religion is used, I would say, in a positive way. It's only used two other places uh, in the New Testament, and both times Paul uses it, and both times he talks about the Jewish religion. That is, before I became a Christian, I belonged to the Jewish religion. And there's sort of a negative connotation uh, to that. Um, But more than that, in our world today, religion is a four-letter word. I mean, people are like, well, I'm not religious, but I am very spiritual. Have you ever talked to someone? I'm not into religion at all. I don't go to church. But I'm a very spiritual person. Which, again, someone my age is, I mean, if somebody had said that 30 years ago, we would say, well, you're, you're really full of yourself, aren't you? You know, to say, I am spiritual. But people have rejected religion, organized religion, church activities, and are more uh, open to a personal spirituality. What does religion mean? Well, outside the New Testament, but even as Paul uses it, it seems to focus on the outward aspects of religious practice. Okay. The rites and rituals, if you would, Uh, if you wish, the things that you do in a given religion. I don't think that James is thinking of rite and ritual, but I do think he is speaking of the external world. That is, there needs to be something that is seen in the external world of our Christianity. We know from what Jesus taught that what we say and what we do begins in our heart. That's why Jesus said it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean, it's what comes out. What we say, our actions begin in the heart. Um, But again, we need need to be careful that we don't make a disconnect between what is internal and what is external. James, in this book, I think, focuses very much on the external world. We'll talk more about that in a minute. As I said last week, he said we should not merely listen to the word, but we should do. It isn't just taking in what and, and internally uh, meditating on. We need to put it into practice. The second question that would come up is if if you were to ask to me, ask me, or if I were to ask you, name three things that you think should mark a Christian. What are the three marks of pure religion? Would these be the three things you would come up with? Not sure that they are. Why these three features? Now, I, I, I do think there is a connection with what he was saying, what we studied last week, that we are to be like our Heavenly Father. 
quick to listen, slow to speak. So that's keeping a tight rein uh, on your tongue. Uh, We are told that he gives generously, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So that is taking care of those in need. Uh, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. He is holy. We are the first fruits. We are to be holy, so don't be polluted. Um, I think that may be why he picked these. But understand that he is telling us how we should live our lives. It's based on what he discerns about God the Father, based on the revelation of Jesus of Nazareth. This is how Jesus lived his life. This is who God is. This is how we should be. Just a side note, and if you're taking notes, something to keep in mind for the future. The rest of the book of James basically revolves around these three points. In chapter 2, he will be talking about caring for others. In chapter 3, he, the first part, he will be talking about controlling your tongue. And then the last part of chapter 3, chapter 4, and the first part of chapter 5, living a holy life. Let's look at these three features. First of all, a controlled tongue. And again, when we get to chapter 3, James is very descriptive about the human tongue, that it's a small little thing, and it does incredible damage. Uh, You can control, you can tame a wild animal. You can't control your tongue. Um, The word that is used here is to bridle our tongue the way that you do with a horse. He's already mentioned that we are to be slow to speak. Uh, I think he's just sort of fleshing it out. But here he makes a connection, perhaps that we've not made, between the mouth and the heart. And you say, well, wait a minute. Verse number 26, he doesn't say anything about the heart. No, but he does speak of considering yourself religious and deceiving yourself. I think these are both internal operations. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a religious person. I'm a spiritual person. Well, it should be reflected in what you say. There is a connection between who you are inside and who you are when it comes out of your mouth. And I think it's, it's very possible that James has in mind the words of Jesus. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. James says, don't deceive yourself, guys. What's inside comes out. You need to control your tongues. It is possible, however, to be a hypocrite and control your tongue in public. Uh, James says, "Don't just be careful you don't deceive yourselves. The second feature is caring for those in need. And this carries over, religion is mentioned in verse number 26. Now, what is pure religion that God accepts? Uh, it's, there's not a difference between personal religion and God's religion. Okay, this is the way we're supposed to live. If God is our Father, then the evidence is to be seen in our lives. And what are we told about God? We are told in the book of Psalms, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. If we are God's children, then we should care for orphans, we should care for widows, and take care of them in their distress. We should care for them knowing that we probably never get repaid, but that's not why we do it. We do it because this is what God would do. And when we look at the ministry of Jesus... Is he concerned about those in need? Absolutely. His ministry is one that went to those who were in need. Taking care of of orphans and widows is a big part of Mosaic law. It's mentioned time and time again. And the connection that is made is, you know what? You used to be slaves in Egypt. 
helpless. You could not help yourselves. I rescued you. I redeemed you. Okay? Now that you're doing well, you need to take care of people who are in a bad situation. In the same way that I rescued you out of slavery, you need to rescue widows and orphans who don't have enough to eat, who don't have a place to stay, who don't have clothes to wear. You need to take care of them. In the same way, we who are God's children, we weren't always his children. He had to redeem us. He had to rescue us. We should, at the same time, take care of those who are in need. By the way, in, in this verse, when he talks about pure religion that is faultless and acceptable to God, this is not a complete list, okay? And, and he's not trying to summarize what uh, pure religion is. What he is doing is he is saying these are the essentials. John Calvin wrote, he does not define generally what religion is, but reminds us that religion without the things he mentions is nothing. There has to be a care for those who are in need. In Isaiah chapter 1, God is not happy with his people, the people of Judah. He wants them to cut out all this religious activity, all the temple, the sacrifices. He is sick of their religious activity. He wants them to do what is right. And let me just read to you. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Hey, you can go to church every Sunday if you want. If you don't help those who are in need, those that God brings into your life, if you don't help them, then you are not doing what God requires. The third feature is that we are to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. Now, I think you would agree that up to this point, the two things that James has called for in his readers, we have seen in the lives of unbelievers. I would dare say there are unbelievers who are better at controlling their tongues than many Christians. And there are unbelievers who care for those in need better than many Christians. But it is this third feature that is sort of the dividing line. They have followed thus far the commands of Christ, but they cannot go any further. The key is the word world, the idea of the world. In the New Testament, (coughs) it represents the whole human being, the whole human scheme of things, organized by humans in terms of human wisdom, to achieve human goals without God, without his laws, without his values, or his judgment. It is ultimately calling someone else Lord. Jesus is Lord. The world says, no, he's not. And so you have competing systems. The Lordship of Christ or the lordship of the world. We live in the world, but we say, at least, we claim that Jesus is our Lord. But living in the world, we face the daily danger of being polluted, contaminated, tainted by the way the world thinks. We are bombarded, I think, endlessly. Our senses are, our thoughts, our imaginations by what the world has to say. 
and it, even if you, it's almost like standing up against a strong wind, you sort of lean into it, after a while we begin to weaken and our values are eroded. Just the sheer demand on our time, our energy, and our money, I think, begins to erode. And it is easy for us to make compromises and to give in and therefore be polluted by the world. And James says, no, don't do this. Control your tongue. Take care of those in need. And don't be polluted by the world. Now, let's go back to what we started out with. Based on the assumption that the exhortations, the commands of the New Testament, are based on the example of Jesus. Do we see these three features mentioned by James in the life of Jesus? Ask yourself, what did Jesus do? Not what would he do, what did he do? Did he control his tongue? I think he did. I, I think I would have said a lot more. I think I had to let some people have it. Um, I do think we see in the person of Jesus one who controlled his tongue. Isaiah tells us, as a lamb is silent before led to the slaughter, that's Jesus. Pilate was amazed. All these people are accusing you. They're saying all these slanderous things about you, and you're not answering. I have, Pilate says, I have the power to take your life, and you're not going to say anything? But again, I think... That's where we tend to jump to, but just in the everyday life, when you know what people are thinking, when you know they don't believe, when you know they want the miracle, but they're not going to follow you, how do you just not say something every time? I think we see this in Jesus. He allows people to grow. As a good parent, you can't watch every single move. They have to make mistakes. They have to learn on their own. And Jesus controlled his tongue. Did he care for those in need? Even people who are not Christians, this is what they know about Jesus. He is a good teacher, <clears throat> and he helped those in need. <clears throat> they may reject the miracles, but he had a good heart. He wanted to do the right thing. Did he keep himself from being polluted by the world? There's an amazing story in Matthew 16. When Jesus told his disciples for the first time that he was going up to Jerusalem. And there he was going to be betrayed and he was going to be put on trial. He was going to be put to death. And Peter says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Just a few verses earlier, uh, Jesus had said, Peter, you know, your name is Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus now says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. See, there's the choice, the lordship of Jesus or the world. And the world says, Never, Lord, you're not, you're not going to die. We're not going to let that happen. Satan says, worship me, and I'll give you everything. Did Jesus keep himself from being polluted by the world? Absolutely. 
And what James tells us today, what he tells his readers centuries ago, is follow the example of Jesus. It's not just rules. Rules to remember. This is the person of Jesus. A person who was slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger. Someone who controlled his tongue. Someone who cared for those who were in need. And someone who kept himself from being polluted by the world. And we are to follow in his footsteps. He's our older brother. He's already walked down the path. We are to follow him. And not say, what would he do? What would he do? No, what did he do? And look at the Gospels. Look at the Epistles. Look at the Old Testament. And here see Christ. He is the center of Scripture. He is the center of human history. And follow his example. Let's pray together. Father, for a variety of reasons, we, we've been guilty of reading your word in a cold and clinical way, seeing it as an abstraction, as having theology, which it does, but not theoretical or abstract, but anchored in the person of your Son. And so when we read James telling us how we are to live, He's not merely giving us rules. He is setting forth to us the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. I fear we have been guilty of imprisoning your Son in the first four books of the New Testament and not letting him out beyond that and failing to take into account that all of Scripture points to him. We thank you for what James wrote. May we follow in the footsteps of Jesus as those who control their tongues, care for those in need, and reject the lordship of the world and submit to Christ as he submitted to you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that we don't have to rely on exclusively on our own memories, our ability to remember, put, uh, get the application of this. But we have your spirit who lives within us. May we listen to him as he seeks to bring these truths home to our hearts. May we think on them in the days to come. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. May we follow in Christ's footsteps and be lights in a world of darkness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together?
bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.